on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Good afternoon and welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast with Eric Scorsoni and Sarah Klammer. We are here from the beautiful campus of Michigan State University, uh, late September in early fall. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you, Eric? I am very good. Just some quick news updates. So from the uh, Association for Evolutionary Economics, there are Couple job openings that are of potential interest institutionalists at Cal State Fresno and Cal State San Bernardino. You can look to the AFE Twitter site to get links to those job positions. Also in the news, uh, our last guest, William Waller, has just issued or reissued an ebook version of Clarence Ayer's uh, famous theory of economic progress. So something to look out for. And if you're in the Twitter world again, and also uh, today we're talking with Charles Whalen, um, who also has a book coming out, which we will be talking about. That book is Institutional Economics, Perspectives and Methods in Pursuit of a Better World, which will be released on October 28th. And we will be talking more about that. So that's some news from the world of institutional economics. Today we have our guest, uh, Charles Whalen. Charles Good friend of ours, we've known for many years here at Michigan State. Charles uh, got his PhD at the University of Texas. He has had a long and illustrious career. He's actually spent some time working with Hyman Minsky at the Levy Institute, was a principal analyst at the Congressional Budget Office. So like all good institutionalists, has spent time in academia and outside of academia. And uh, he's currently at the Baldy Center at the University of Buffalo as a research fellow. So today we're going to be covering some of Charles' work, uh, his history, some information on his new book coming out, which I think should all be very interesting. So with that, let me welcome Charles to the podcast. I'd also just like to quickly mention that a lot of the topics covered today are also covered in um, Charles's contribution to our Legal Economic Nexus blog. So if people want to go and read more about him and his work, they can check that out on our blog. Absolutely. Thanks, sir. Charles, how are you? Thanks. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. So we're going to start with a question kind of related to kind of, uh, and and more of this information is on our our blog, but kind of how you got into institutional economics, um, what were some important influences in your career? Obviously, it's it's a not the typical career path in many ways. So can you give us some ideas of how you ended up here? Sure. So I think looking back, I was destined to be an institutional economist. And that said, this is going to be a bit of a long answer. I'll try to do my best to keep it concise. I think I've always had an appreciation of history. Now, growing up in Boston in the 1960s and 70s, I think there was evidence all around me of of history, not just political history, but also economic history. In just the one county where I grew up, 
you could see evidence of all the stages of industrial development in the United States, from the old mills to the burgeoning computer industry. It was all there in front of you. I was also very interested in public policy, in particular in the constructive use of government for the benefit of working families. Now that comes from my family background and also from seeing the struggles that working people around me uh, were dealing with, struggles such as plant closings, unemployment, high inflation. And my dad was a factory machinist. He learned his trade in the Marines. My mom's a first generation Italian American. She learned English as a second language. She worked as an office clerk and as a bookkeeper. So I was interested in how we could use the government's role constructively to help working folks and the unemployed, like the folks that were around me and the folks that helped raise me. So I think an appreciation of history and an interest in the constructive role of government and the importance of the law and institutions and public policy are an important part of the institutionalist outlook. So I think I picked that up well before I started studying economics as a, as a university student. The other thing is that getting to college for me wasn't even a guarantee. My mom and dad didn't know the first thing about college, except that they thought it was really important for their children to get a college degree as at the time it was seen as a gate towards, uh, towards economic security. And if you had the college degree, then you got through that gate. Unfortunately, the school system really wasn't all that helpful. I came from the wrong side of town. And so the school system said kids from my part of town shouldn't really be thinking too much about college to begin with. Fortunately, I had a coach uh, on a football team outside the school system who took an interest in me and really helped me understand about colleges and, and, and how to think about them. So I ended up, I found myself at Cornell University in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. It seemed a really natural fit for me because it's an interdisciplinary program, social science-based, centering on issues of work and working people, and on the resolution of labor management conflict. In the start of my second year at Cornell, I chose an academic advisor. I was randomly assigned an academic advisor who was in the Department of Labor Economics. Now, I'd taken about three economics courses by then. They're all focused on neoclassical economics and on what the, the professors would call choice theory. I remember they were, would always use the, the phrase choice theory. By that time, I wanted nothing to do with economists. Instead, I selected a specialist in labor history and collective bargaining as my advisor. So now we don't seem as if we're going in the right track for economics here. But then I took a course called Human Resource Economics in Public Policy. It was taught by Vernon Briggs, an institutional labor economist. Until then, I only knew about institutional economics in connection with history and with industrial relations. In my labor history courses, we read labor history readings by John R. Commons. And of course, I knew that John R. Commons was one of the founders of the field of industrial relations as an interdisciplinary field. But Vernon introduced me to the fact that there was a labor economic side of institutionalism that was very policy oriented. While most economics looks at the market as solving all of our problems and the government as being one of the problems, Briggs explored history, policy, especially employment and training policies, and his focus was on that constructive role of government. He also introduced me to other types of labor market theories, labor market segmentation theories and so forth. So he showed me there was a lot more than just this choice theory. In the end, he became my de facto advisor and I took a bunch of courses with him in human resource studies, which in an earlier day had been called manpower policy studies. 
So I even became brave enough to take some advanced labor economics courses with the other economists. One of those was a visiting Oxford professor, Ken Mayhew. He was an eclectic economist. He had strong ties in the UK to the policy world. And he told me that you could fashion economic theory to make it say whatever you wanted. And that really stuck with me. I also took a lecture course at Cornell in the main economics department at the university that was taught by Alfred Kahn, who was Jimmy Carter's inflation czar. So by the time I left Cornell, I was an institutionalist. Now to save money, I graduated a semester early and started right into the PhD program at the University of Texas at Austin. Vernon had taught there, Vernon Briggs had taught there, but that's not why I chose to go there. There were really three reasons. One is because its economics curriculum was a bit different than other economics curriculum because it still had some courses that were built into the curriculum that were institutionalist and heterodox. And second reason was because Ray Marshall was there and he had just returned from being Jimmy Carter's Secretary of Labor. So it was clear that he had a policy orientation. He was a champion of full employment and, and the importance of active labor market policies was clear in, in his academic work and his policy work. And the third reason is because Barbara Jordan taught at the LBJ School. And I thought if Barbara Jordan is at the University of Texas, it's gotta be a good place. In Austin, I took courses with institutionalist Wendell Gordon, um, who was the keeper of the flame of the Texas tradition. But I also, of course, studied with, him, with Ray Marshall. He became my dissertation advisor. Most of his work was, was taught out of the LBJ School, but he also was affiliated with the Econ Department as well. And of course, a few years later, Ray Marshall was one of the founders of the Economic Policy Institute. Now, what's particularly ironic and what brings us all full circle here is that Ray's dissertation advisor at the University of California, Berkeley, was Walter Galenson, a labor economist who was a specialist in comparative industrial relations. Over the years, Walter Galenson moved from Berkeley to Cornell. As it turns out, Walter Galenson was that labor economist who was randomly assigned to me as an undergraduate at Cornell. So as I say, it seems as though I was destined to be an institutional economist. Fascinating, yeah. And I think as we've heard from others, it's a good point for members of AFEE and other institutional economists is that critical importance of individuals in shaping young people and, and the, where they're gonna go and how important that is. Sarah, why don't you take the next question? Yeah, so Ray Marshall, of course, influenced your dissertation um, beyond neoclassical thought. And I guess I'm just wondering how that work has influenced your career going forward. I think it's influenced my career from a scholarship perspective. Um, I think it served me really well from that perspective. It provided me with a foundation for work not only on advancing post-Keynesian institutionalism, but also on labor and regional development. And so there were both aspects of that in my dissertation. Interestingly, my dissertation was supposed to originally be fully on labor and its influence on regional economic development. It was very applied institutional labor economics research um, dissertation. But the conventional economists in the department, and there were many, kept saying, this doesn't seem like economics to me. How is this economics? In fact, some of them said, if there are these labor management citizens committees in a community 
that are so useful to that community? Why do you need to study them and learn about what makes them work and how you can make them work better? The market will take care of all that. If they're so important, they will be created uh, on their own and they will exist on their own and economists don't need to study them. Um, so my dissertation ended up being front loaded toward explaining why the sort of work that I wanted to do was indeed institutional labor economics, it was indeed economics, a particular type of economics, institutional uh, economics, and also showing that that economics was um, very easy to easily integrated with post-Keynesian economics. And so the dissertation focused on that. So looking back then, one of the things that it served me well with was helping to advance post-Keynesian institutionalism, to integrate those traditions and advance them. And the other is to, to, to work on labor and regional development. So it opened the door for me to work as a participant observer um, on labor and regional issues in Western New York, uh, which is very much in the, in the John R. Commons, Wisconsin tradition. Uh, I worked for about four years as a faculty member in the extension division of Corning Univers University's Industrial Relations School. And I helped the labor movement there to be more active in regional development. And we did that not just around the Buffalo area, but actually um, the work that we did covered about seven counties in Western New York. And, and, they, and they did really great things. And, and I was able to learn from them. And sometimes I would learn from them playing basketball, shooting hoops. And then after we got done playing, we would sit and we would talk and I would listen to them and listen to the experiences that they had, the workers had on the shop floor, the experiences they had dealing with, uh, with management and so forth. Um, and so I was supposed to, there, supposed to be there to teach them and supposed to be there to help facilitate their work with the business community and regional government. In fact, I was getting the education every day. Uh, and so that was really valuable. And, and again, the dissertation helped open the door to that sort of work. Yeah, that's really interesting. Again, that seems a key theme in institutionalism is that, you know, learning, I think there's a tendency in economics where we're sort of, we're going to teach the world, whereas we can learn a lot from the world. And I think that's a great theme you're highlighting mm -hmm. here, Charles. Um, I'd like to think about a little bit about, you know, you had a formal role in government in the Congressional Budget Office, the legislative branch of government. Curious, you know, that's a lot of institutionalists have worked in government. I'm curious how that experience was for you. Did it shape your views on government positively or negatively? Uh, what did you take out of it, say, today in terms of how you might do your own work and how that might contrast, you know, commons experiences in government, perhaps? Okay, let me just say a little bit about some of that. What I think is useful as a starting point is to recognize that CBO is very much the sort of nonpartisan independent research agency that Commons thought was vitally necessary to inform policymakers. He thought that those sorts of organizations were vital to allowing policymakers and the public to make fact-based decisions, right? And CBO is, is that sort of an organization. And, and I found when I got there, an extraordinary group of researchers who were non-political and were committed to getting the facts right. CBO is open to a broad range of views and almost always when they present their findings, they present them as a range of estimates, not a, a one single estimate. 
And so, again, I think that that reflects the fact that they are taking in a broad range of views, recognizing that a variety of assumptions can lead to differing outcomes, and then reflecting that in their work. And I think that's really important. I think that's fully consistent with the sort of work that Commons thought should be done by commissions or by bodies that, that answer to commissions um, or other branches. And even the labor movement, I think he believed that labor and management, when they met to negotiate, should have access to folks that would be able to provide that sort of, of, of fact-based information for them. And when I worked at CBO, the US economy was trying to recover from the global financial crisis. And of course, the great recession that was a consequence of that. I was hired by Doug Elmendorf. He's now the Dean of the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. I think Doug did a really great job at the time um, of highlighting sensible Keynesian-oriented policies. Uh, and I think generally, if I were in his position, I would have done the same thing that, that he was doing at the time. Um, so I, I was pleased to work for somebody like Doug and I think that he gave the right kind of policy prescriptions at the right time. Um, and so, so it was a great experience, not only to work with somebody like that, but also to be part of an organization that was trying to provide fact-based information. In practice, of course, looking back, stepping back from that, but the role of government, I think the role of government is often troubling to folks like us. I think it's often been at odds with what I would envision is the public good. But at the same time, and this is not just the sort of thing that I would say, but if John Kenneth Galbraith were, were here right now, he'd tell you the same thing. Nevertheless, the state's role is indispensable, right? So we could, we could be unhappy with it. Um, sometimes the state is, like as Jamie Galbraith has called it, sometimes it's the predator state because it, you know, it preys on the rest of us. And that's certainly not what we want. But it's certainly indispensable. And we see that in all the work of institutionalists, Al Schmidt, Warren Samuels, who you mentioned, right? The, the role of the state, you can take it all the way back to John R. Commons with his book on the legal foundation of capitalism. Um, the state's role is indispensable. Um, so that means we can't withdraw from policy discussions. We have a responsibility to help contribute to sensible policies. We have to do that both as professionals, but also as citizens. Uh, and I think that um, that was really a, a great um, experience that I had at CBO was, was able to provide, to provide one way of, of influencing that. Of course, there were days at CBO when you would see an issue of a report and then uh, um, within an hour or so, uh, maybe an extremist of one side or the other in Congress would issue a statement that would totally distort what it was that we said, and you sort of scratch your head and you get frustrated. But then there were times when, when Congress would hold up a vote because they're waiting for our analysis of a healthcare bill or immigration bill or a fiscal policy bill. And then once the report came out, you could see that that, that report, that fact-based report had an impact on how people voted. And so, um, so those are some of the insights that I took away from CBO. So this involvement in government and actively being part of the policy process, is this a large part of what drew you to the work of Commons uh, rather than the work of Veblen? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, you know, as I said earlier, I, I came to Commons because he was an influential scholar in industrial relations. So I came to him from that direction. 
Cummings wanted to contribute to economics and social reform. And his special attention in his work was issues of concern to workers, right? So yeah. it was natural for me to take an interest in that sort of work. And it's a, that scholarship, that orientation that he had fully connected with somebody like the kind of person I said that I was when I was, you know, in high school trying to think about where to go to college and what to study. And, and then again, as I began to learn more and more, uh, it was a natural fit for me. Cummins also made major contributions to protective labor legislation, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, and so forth. And again, that was government playing its constructive role. So it connected right. with what I was interested in. But also Cummins considered the business cycle to be the most important of labor problems. Now, mainly that's because of unemployment in the downturn and the importance of addressing that. But also he thought that there was a corrosive effect of inflation. And he writes about that in the 20s. Well, of course, you know, being um, a young person during the era of stagflation, it's not just concerned with unemployment issues, but we were deeply concerned with high inflation. So that connects with me as well. Cummins saw that when he studied the business cycle. But also Cummins had another insight that was interesting. Uh, he argued that in the recovery stage of the business cycle, because there's a lack of jobs, the, the, that lack of jobs creates a coercive effect on workers and it, it coerces them and it forces them to take jobs at wages that are not necessarily the sorts of wages that they really ought to be taking. Um, so, uh, and, and it also forces them to, to compete against each other on, all, on other workers, against other workers in all sorts of other ways. And so he says, there's a corrosive effect of just job scarcity during the upturn, as well as the dangerous uh, consequences of unemployment and the downturn and the corrosive effect of inflation and the upturn. So the business cycle, as Cummins said, is the most important of all labor problems. And again, for somebody coming from the sort of world where I came from, it just connected is really important to me. And, it, and it's been a guide for me throughout my work. Now, of course, Veblen clearly has been an insightful theorist. There's no denying that one gets great insights from his, his work on um, business enterprise. Uh, much of that has to do with business cycles too. Um, and, but and also his work on uh, the leisure class, his other volumes, great insightful theorists. He also offered a pow powerful critique of conventional economics. And, and that still sticks with me to this day, his, his critique of conventional economics. But again, Cummins spoke to the interest in labor. He spoke to the interest in reforming uh, policies. Um, constructively in using the state to help working families. And that's always resonated. Yeah. Fascinating. I think staying on the John R. theme, um, you wrote a paper back in the late 80s about rethinking commons, especially institutional economics, um, is you know, maybe most important book. You, you talked about the different interpretations that have been given to commons at the time. I think looking forward now, almost 30 some years, I'm curious um, what do have institutionalists kind of embrace some of the things you talked about there? Do we have a better understanding of commons today than maybe we did in the 80s? There has been a lot of common scholarship, of course. I'm just curious kind of where you see things and maybe if you have any quick ideas on where we should be going from here in common scholarship. Well, you know, I think it's beginning to happen that folks are 
beginning to, to dig into commons more these days. You know, when I started my career, um, there weren't many institutional economists who found inspiration in commons. You know, there were some in industrial relations programs, as we said, and some in ag econ programs. But even in the economics departments, the, most of the institutionalists uh, of the 1980s were in the Veblen AS tradition. And much of that work didn't resonate with me as much as the policy-oriented work of the post-Keynesians like Alfred Leitner and Minsky, right? And as did the labor-oriented work of folks like Vernon uh, and, and Ray Marshall. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting, early in my career, Ingvar Ramstedt, who also looked to Commons time and time again for insight, he pulled me aside one time and he, and he told me very clearly, you're the last of a dying breed, right? So, so when I got started in this uh, tradition, the com commons's contributions were not even something that were mined very heavily within economic, within institutional economics. In recent years, though, I think you're right. I think we have seen signs of resurgence, uh, even outside the U.S. In fact, in many in many cases outside the U.S. Uh, I, I was in Poland a few years back and I met some Polish researchers that were turning to commons to learn about some of the problems that they were facing. Uh, in Japan, there are a number of scholars who are beginning to dig into commons, translate its work, apply what they've learned there, um, and have even now begun to participate in the AFI meetings here in the States and publish in the JEI. So that's really good to see. You know, I think that we've seen various insights of commons that folks have drawn upon in recent years, law and economics, endogenous money, which I think dovetails with the post-Keynesian tradition, of course, um, business cycle theory, full employment policy, and even commons' approach to research methods. And there are a couple of chapters um, in one of the two books that I have that's coming out, where there are a couple of chapters that dig into commons for the benefit of figuring out what we can learn uh, with respect to research methods. So I think that there are a lot of different aspects of commons that people are digging into, and it's great to see. You know, I don't think there's one reason for it, and I'm not really sure how it got started. I think there are many small reasons. Many of them have to do with individual professors that have taken an interest and encouraged others to take an interest. Maybe it's also that commons is very applied and reform oriented. And when times get tough, people start looking for something, you know, and um, I, I met an economist, not economist, actually a political scientist from the UK a few years back. And she was trying to understand financial crises and money um, and the role of money in the economy uh, more fully. And she found comments. Um, interestingly, she, some of her work, now just thinking off the top of my head, some of her work involved finding comments through, through my work, uh, which is surprising and, and, and nice to see. But it wasn't just my work. She found some other work on comments, and that opened the door to comments for her. And so, um, you know, there are many different reasons for it. it. It happens in, you know, different places. I think some of the Japanese work is because somebody actually studied at Wisconsin with comments a long time ago came back to Japan and continued that tradition, you know, from one, one set of students, one cohort of students to the next, you know? So it's interesting how it happens. It, it, it's, it's not one thing. Just like there, I don't think there's one, one thing you can point to as 
is the thing that people are studying commons for these days. I think there are a variety of different reasons why people are studying commons, as I just described. Thinking too about, you know, you said people have maybe been drawn to him um, while looking for, you know, reform um, or methods of reform. I mean, times have certainly been tough and there has been a lot of talk of reform through 2020 and now. Um, do you, in your mind, think that Commons has an overall theory of democracy and governance um, that could be applied or used, or is this a little bit more tricky? Okay, no, no. You know, so this is a, one of those other aspects of Commons that we could dig into. And actually, I don't think it's one that folks have dug into enough. And as your question suggests, I think it's one that's becoming really important for us these days. I, I think he had an overall theory of um, democracy. I think he believed deeply in the constitution, which evolved, and he explains this in the, the, um, the book that he wrote on legal foundations of capitalism. The constitution evolved into a system of judicial sovereignty. Right Over time, the judiciary elevated itself to the point where it was to determine what the Constitution says, right? So Commons writes, what does the Constitution say? It says what the Supreme Court says it does, right? Um, and of course, the Supreme Court is supposed to um, weigh all the facts and give due consideration to all the perspectives um, in a given situation. But what's to stop the court from becoming exactly what Justice Amy Coney Barrett insisted it's not, which is a bunch of partisan hacks, right? What's to stop it from, from becoming that? In fact, Justice Barrett admits that there are judicial philosophies. So what if all the judges share the same judicial philosophy to the exclusion of considering other philosophies? Commons thought all perspectives held by the public needed a hearing. He hoped that would happen as a result of a democratic process through political participation by means of voluntary associations, all expressing their interests, all getting a hearing. But Commons wasn't naive. So he thought what he called a fourth branch of government was needed, a branch in which there was collective democracy. I mean, that was the key characteristic of this fourth branch was collective democracy. He didn't think it required a constitutional change, he thought that legislators could simply set broad policy goals and then delegate administrative decisions and policy details to deliberative forums that would be composed of representatives of various stakeholders. Commons often called these commissions, these forums, he called them commissions, but even collective bargaining between labor and management was one form of what he would call collective democracy. Now, Commons always thought that these forums should have a research arm, which goes back to nonpartisan bodies like the CBO, right? And those nonpartisan research arms needed to have the respect of all shareholders, all stakeholders, right? So that's, that's some of what Commons was thinking about when he, when he thought about democracy and policy and the law reflecting the public will and the public good. He believed deeply in governance shaped by collective negotiation or collaborative negotiations, right? Deeply believed that governance should be shaped by collaborative processes in which everyone is involved. But he also worried 
that there were authoritarian forces at home and abroad from both the left and the right. right? And you see this time and again in Commons, but especially in his 1934 book, which is the, at the end of his career. He, I think he retired in 32, finished these books up and published them in, in 34. And in both the Institution Economics book and his uh, biography, autobiography, you see his discussion about concerns about authoritarian forces. So in the end, I don't think he was all that optimistic and other people can, can you know, debate that, but I don't, I, I don't think he was all that optimistic. At the end of his career, and he, he writes about this in his 34 book, Cummins wrote that an exile from Europe called him the last Mohican of liberalism. And I think, I think he was worried that that was right. So today again, we face an authoritarian threat. And I don't think any of us have explored as much as we need to this part of Cummins. I think we really, really do, because I think this threat may be the defining political issue of our time. And so um, it's a side of commons that goes in there along with law and economics, endogenous money, business cycles, full employment, research methods, and all, all the other things, labor studies. But it's not one that's gotten as much attention as it deserves. And I think that uh, right now it's one of the central issues we need to focus on. Yeah, very important. Thank you. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, your experience with Hyman Minsky, and I'm curious. Obviously, Minsky became famous, at least for a moment, at the Minsky moment and during the global financial crisis. I'm just curious, though, if beyond that, you think there's some things we should have learned from Minsky besides just that, and what some of your experiences were with him. Sure, I think we should take away two main things from Minsky's work. One is an appreciation of endogenously generated financial stability. Now, conventional economics has an efficient market view of financial markets. Crises aren't supposed to happen. The global financial crisis was not supposed to happen. In contrast, Minsky's view is that financial institutions and financial practices evolve in the direction of increased fragility over a period of prosperity. The tendency toward more fragile financial structures is inevitable in Minsky's view in, in our sort of capitalist society. So financial markets are characterized by endogenously generated instability and economies with those sorts of financial markets are prone to endogenously generated business cycles. And in the global financial crisis, we have a perfect example of this, of the financial instability and the economic business cycle instability. Now, some people focus on the moment when things turn sour, and that people have called the Minsky moment. But in fact, the key takeaway regarding Minsky is that today's capitalism is inherently prone to the boom and bust cycles. And as Minsky said, over time, stability is destabilizing. So I think that's the first lesson is the endogenous nature of instability in our capitalist society. Other thing I think we should learn from Minsky is that capitalism is an ever evolving system. Minsky died in the mid 1990s, right? He died 10 years before the global financial crisis, right? But he was still on the front page of the Washington Post when it happened. Okay. but. He died in the mid-1990s, and for the last decade of his life, 
He didn't focus on financial stability. What he focused on was the evolution of American capitalism and the fact that he thought that American capitalism had entered a new stage. Right? For the first 25 years after World War II, he, he argued that the US economy was in a stage that he described as managerial capitalism. And in that stage, corporate managers dominated the economy. Yes, public policy provided uh, an important role because it helped to stabilize uh, downturns through macroeconomic stabilization policies. But corporate managers, given that stability in the climate, dominated the economy. By about 1980, however, Minsky thought that institutional investors came to dominate the economy, right? And this new stage is what he called money manager capitalism, right? So when people were talking about Minsky at, in 1996, and they were, they were going back to his work on financial stability, that's all valuable and important, but it wasn't what he was talking about for the last 10 years of his life. He was instead talking about a shift which provided the context in which we look at the instability that we see around us. Right? Now, this money energy capitalism is characterized by a relentless push towards shareholder value. Right? And others have recently written about that. Um, Bill Azonik, for example, has written a lot about this. But Minsky is writing about this decades before anyone else. Right? Shareholder value has transformed corporations. Right? It has completely reshaped the relationship between workers and managers. Right? Workers have increasingly become just another spot market commodity. We buy and sell workers as we need them in the amount we need. We don't offer them long-term job ladders and, and we, we don't invest in them. We expect them to invest in themselves. Um, pensions are at best, they're um, defined contributions, not defined benefits, right? And the gig economy is a logical pro product of, of this sort of notion of, of shareholder value capitalism or money manager capitalism as Minsky called it. Uh, another logical outcome is rising inequality rising worker insecurity, and the erosion of the American dream for many people. And this erosion has, for many, led to disillusionment and discontent that has spilled over into, wait for it, the political arena, right? So as a result, the rise of money manager capitalism has become the defining economic issue of our time, I think. And it dovetails with the rising threat of authoritarianism which I think is a defining political issue of our time. So these two issues are, are deeply intertwined. And I think Minsky was uh, really on to that um, in terms of understanding that capitalism today is different and we need to think about how we respond differently because of that. And so that's what I got from Minsky more than anything else. Yeah, he was, uh, he was insightful, very insightful. I think you answered a lot of our questions, actually, with that one answer. So thank you for that. We're running short on time. So actually, I'm going to move to the question about your book that you have coming out. And you actually have two, um, unless there's another one <laughs> that I don't know about yet. But let's talk Big about progress. the one. Huh? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, let's, the, one of them, Eric, and I actually contributed to. And that's um, institutional economics, perspectives and methods in pursuit of a better world. Could you discuss your inspiration for this and talk about maybe some of your goals in bringing all these researchers together? Sure. In the mid 1980s, there were a couple of volumes edited by institutional economist Mark Toole. 
And these volumes outlined key aspects of institutional economics, and then they applied institutionalism to a number of policy areas. The collection that I put together isn't directly an update of those, those earlier collections, but it does try to present what I think are, what we, I think, as a group think are some vital institutionalist perspectives for our time and some vital methods that can be used going forward. So the perspective side looks at or draws upon Clarence Ayres and Veblen, so it's sort of like Veblen through the eyes of Clarence Ayres um, and, and his students. That's sort of the Texas wing of institutional economics, the, the Texas tradition. There's also um, the Commons wing, the Wisconsin wing of institutionalism. So the perspectives in the book draw on the Texas side, the Wisconsin side. There's also the European side. We have a chapter on Karl Polanyi. Uh, we also have chapters that look more integratively, post-Keynesian institutionalism, feminist institutionalism, and then sort of an open systems institutionalism that considers or incorporates the natural world and environmental issues into the, into the work of institutionalism. So that, those are some of the perspectives, and I'm sure there are other perspectives that we could have included, but um, that's what's in the volume. And then on the method side, we have a range of topics ranging from myth busting, um, which is some of the work that you would argue Veblen and John Kenneth Galbraith had been doing, and so institutions have been doing it for forever, all the way to um, system dynamics work, which is sort of, you know, cutting edge work that rivals econometrics in, in some respects. So, um, so those are some of the methods. And of course, also there's a contribution um, that the three of us worked on and, um, and really the two of you were the driving force behind it, where we look at Al Schmidt's framework for institutional analysis. And I think one of the interesting things is that the volume has a number of chapters that show the vitality of commons and the contemporary relevance of commons. So um, maybe we are providing some balance to, you know, the last half century of institutionalism, which was focused away from commons. And now there's a little bit more movement in the direction of commons, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, well, certainly interesting to see how some of the methods um, kind of pull from the post-Keynesian tradition. Uh, Eric and I were talking about that earlier with the work of Schmidt. It fits pretty comfortably in there. Right, right. You know, and uh, I think there's a, there's a lot, this gets back to my dissertation, right? I mean, there's a lot uh, within institutionalism and post-Keynesianism that overlaps. It's either, it either directly overlaps or is complementary. And of course, if you wanted to ask me about the second book, um, the second book looks at post-Keynesian institutionalism, right? And it tries to advance that tradition. Um, and so that's what the second book is about. And that should come out by Edward Elgar in early 2022. And that's also a collection of papers. Okay. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I wasn't I, sure how much you could talk about that yet. So. Well, it's interesting, you know, just reflecting on the fact that it's a collection, you know, Commons did a lot of work collaboratively with other folks. And, uh, and that also, there's an element, I mean, Commons said that, you know, truth Truth is really at best understood um, in a collaborative way through a social 
group as opposed to one you or I knowing what truth is. So it's interesting that I found myself, I think this is my sixth edited volume, I find myself coming back and again um, to doing work collaboratively, which um, as I say, there's a good side to it. But, but what I can tell you about that volume is it tries to advance the tradition. Part of it has to do with extending analyses of money manager capitalism. No surprise, right, based on what I have been saying earlier today. It also tries to sharpen some of the concepts on democracy uh, and also doing that by looking at um, democracy from a different perspective. The economist writing on that comes from, uh, from the Ukraine and is writing with an eye to what's happening in, um, in the former Soviet Union. So it's not just looking at democracy, which is a vitally important thing to do, but also looking at it from a perspective that's not just US centric, which I think is really valuable. Um, we also try to create some new theories and sympathies. Uh, we look at women in the economy and bringing that into PKI and also environmental sustainability, which I argue is the most important, right? We, we hear it said, but it's true. It's the existential issue of our time. Um, uh, sustainability and gl global warming, climate change. So some of that's in the, in the volume as well. Yeah. So you could say my dissertation has cast a long shadow. Fascinating, yeah. So given that you're putting out obviously two edited volumes, I imagine you're feeling good about the future of institutional economics, but I do want to kind of end on some thoughts for younger scholars, even undergrads or younger even perhaps about where is institutional economics? Is it going in the right direction? Do you have any thoughts? You're obviously past president of AFEE. I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are as we end here on, on what the future of IE looks like. I think it's as promising as ever. You know, conventional economists, if they're willing to be honest with themselves, they know they need to be more aware of history, of institutions, of culture, of law, of real world human psychology, right? You see, I mean, there's behavioral economics, there's there are a variety of, of, of um, offshoots of conventional economics um, where they try to bring in aspects of the things that are important in the real world, but they're usually afraid to do it or they're afraid to do it wholeheartedly. I remember once there was a, a lecture that I attended by a Nobel laureate. And I said, if you try to bring in history and learning and all these things, you know, um, why is it that you still retain optimization as the core principle of your work? And he says, well, if I didn't do that, it would no longer be economics. So I think that sometimes they're afraid, but also I don't know that they always know how to bring these sorts of things in. I remember that, that Robert Solo once wrote a review of a book, What's Wrong with Economics? And he basically suggested that we really don't know how to deal with these sorts of things. So institutionalists <laughs> have been doing it for a long time. And I think that we need to continue to show the way. Now, we're not always going to get credit for it, right? Think about the global financial crisis. We didn't always get credit, although Minsky was in the newspapers and so forth. You know, Krugman tried to, uh, and others, tried to take the ideas of institutionalists and post-Keynesians and then claim it to be their own insights and never sort of linked it back or rarely linked it back to the work we've done. The same thing, uh, MIT economists, the department chair at MIT, talked about the importance of uh, what he called the underground or something of macroeconomics and how they had more insight to offer than dynamics, stochastic, general equilibrium economics did, right? But of course, he couldn't actually cite us because we were outside the fold. Uh, but nevertheless, 
they come to us. Janet Yellen talked about the importance of rereading Minsky when she was um, Fed chair. So all this stuff um, is really important to continue because folks will look to us even if they don't give us credit for it. Now, what did we need to know? That was one of the questions that I think that you folks asked me. What did, what did the institutions of today need to know? I think they need to know the history of Edwin Cummins, Pilates, and so forth. But they need to look at all that with an eye to contemporary problems. And I think that the focus on real world problems is the heart of what institutionalism is and the heart of why it continues to exist, right? Uh, some folks have called it an ever vanishing breed, right? Well, the reason why it never actually completely vanishes is because there are new problems that come up and conventionally kind of throw their hands up, they don't know what to do. And, you know, to the extent that we man manage to continue to keep looking at the real world and real world problems, we've got something to say that nobody else has to say. And so I think that's really important. Um, we also need to try to integrate our work with others, whether it's feminists, post-Keynesians, environmental scientists, progressive legal scholars, right? And then themes, I think one of the other aspects you asked about was themes. I think, again, the evolution of money manager capitalism, its consequences for workers and their families, right? See, I've never really deviated from the work that I did from the very beginning, but I mean, who could argue that, I mean, whether it was President Obama or, or, um, or Bill Clinton, these issues of the importance of you know, shareholder capitalism and its consequences for workers and inequality and economic insecurity, these are the defining issues of our time, uh, the, the, the essential economic issues. The drift toward authoritarianism that Commons was writing about, again, it's, it's crucially important that we get a grip on, on that and try to figure out how, how to address it. And again, global warming, right, without a doubt, you know, it's all hands on deck. So those are certainly themes that I think that institutions need to focus on. Yeah, that's great. No, and thank you. And I think uh, we've we've learned so much from you today. And I think this is going to be useful for both existing and hopefully the future generations of institutional economists that to come forward. Um, I want to note here as we end, uh, we recently passed the. Uh, Birthday of Warren Samuels, who's a huge influence on this podcast, September 14th, 1933 in New York. Warren passed away a little over a decade ago, but he was obviously hugely influential here at Michigan State and got his PhD at Wisconsin uh, under some of Common's students. So just want to acknowledge Warren. Again, I want to thank Charles. That was a great time talking to you and learning from you and all the great things that are coming up in your new books. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, so again, thanks again from the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. This is season one, episode four. Thank you. <laughs>